Uh, so this is from uh, The Guardian, uh, the 19th of February, 2009. Christopher Hitchens on Beirut attack. They kept coming six or seven at first. As a professional provocateur and vocal supporter of the Iraq War, Christopher Hitchens has been engaged in countless verbal punch-ups with his ideological opponents, most of them conducted from the safety of a TV studio. However, when the controversial author, journalist, and broadcaster defaced a political poster on a visit to Beirut last week, he found himself at the wrong end of a bruising encounter that left him walking with a limp and nursing cuts and bruises. Hitchens had been drinking on Beirut's main boulevard, Hamra Street, on Saturday afternoon with two other Western journalists after attending a rally to commemorate the assassination of the former Lebanese Prime Minister uh, Rafiq Hariri. They spotted a poster for the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, a far-right group whose logo bears an uncanny resemblance to the Nazi swastika, and Hitchens decided to act. Quote, They would be better off calling themselves the Syrian National Socialist Party because that's what they are. Hitchens, uh, Hitchens told uh, Media Guardian CO.UK today upon arriving in the UK by plane, quote, I couldn't tear it down, but I got out my marker and I wrote on it, effectively, effectively telling them to fuck off. Hitchens' political statement was witnessed by a group of SSMP activists who have a strong presence in Beirut, quote, with amazing sp speed and broad daylight on this fashionable street, these guys appeared from nowhere, grabbed me by the collar and said, you're coming with us. I said, no, I'm not. And they kept coming, about six or seven at first, with more on the way, he said. He described how he was knocked to the floor, ended up with his shirt covered in blood after he cut his arm in the fall and skinned two fingers on his hand. Hitchens added he was walking with a limp for several, for several days after. Uh, quote, uh, they were after me because I was the one who had defaced the poster. After scrambling to his feet and picking up my glasses and notebook, Hitchens and his companions flagged down a taxi, but a member of the gang who had assailed him jumped in, and they climbed back out onto the street, escaping to, safety, uh, to the safety of a busy coffee shop. The crowd confronted their assailants, and the three men managed to escape. The journalist then caught another taxi to a waterfront hotel to throw them off the scent in case we were followed, he said, although not before Hitchens had taken a punch to the face through the car window. They returned to their own hotel later that afternoon. Hitchens said he had been shaken by the attack, quote, I've just got off a flight. What shook me is how nearly it could have gotten fantastically nasty. We could have been hurt or taken away. These militias have their own private dungeons. I wouldn't fancy spending time in one of those. He stayed on in Beirut to deliver a scheduled talk at the American University yesterday evening where he was confronted by another group of SSMP members. Quote, by that time they had worked out who I was and where I was going to be, so I took along some very nice comrades from the Populist Socialist Party to sit near me. The rival activists were outnumbered. Hitchens added that his host offered to take him to hospital, but he refused. I'm too old to take chances. If you get kicked in the head or the stomach, you should get yourself checked out. But I didn't take a blow to my head or anything. He is recovering in London today before flying back to Washington, uh, home tomorrow, and insists he is bloodied but unbowed. Quote, it was a scrape. It wasn't honors even, but it wasn't a rout. Uh, comrades and friends, hello from the shadow of Rockford Tower in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. Uh, this is Rob here in the studio. Uh, Carl is on assignment today for the Working Families Party. Uh, I am excited to introduce our, introduce our guest today. Uh, ben Burgess is a professor of philosophy, a columnist for Jacobin, and the host of the leftist YouTube show, Give Them an Argument. 
Uh, he is also the author of the new book, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters, which is available now, and we will link it to a non-Amazon source uh, in the show notes. Uh, ben, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, very much appreciated. So I wanted to discuss a little background first um, for younger members of the audience. Uh, I'm in my late 40s, so I remember Hitchens uh, as like the witty British socialist guy on C-SPAN and the Bill Maher Network show, and a columnist at The Nation and a critic of Kissinger and all of that stuff. Um, but before we get to Brexit and the Iraq War and new atheism, can you just talk about a little, a little bit of the young Hitchens, um, the Oxford educate, educated Trotskyist, uh, the journalist, the new statesman, sort of that stage in his life, maybe even before um, he arrived uh, on our shores? Yeah, so uh, Hitchens was uh, recruited into the International Socialists in 1964, I think, which I, I believe is actually just before he actually started as a student at Oxford, but, you know, he, he was, that's like, you know, where he was uh, most, you know, where he was originally kind of active with them. And this is the small socialist group uh, that uh, is the predecessor to the British SWP, Socialist Workers Party, which ironically was like one of the main organizers of the big anti-Iraq war uh, protests in, you know, London in 2002, 2003. Um, by which point on, you know, questions like that, he'd gone the wrong way. But um, but this was, yeah, this was a group that, as you say, came out of the Trotskyist uh, tradition. You know, we could sort of play the leftist sectarian game about, you know, being like really like slicing the definitions really finely. But, you know, I think Trotskyist is probably good enough. We, we, uh, try, not, we, try, not, we try not to, but yeah, sometimes we get into that. <laughs> yeah, for all practical purposes. Uh, and uh, the, the first, I, I should say by this time, you know, by the time he joined the IS, he'd already been uh, kicked out of the, the Labor Party uh, as had, you know, which he'd been, you know, kind of a member of the left wing of uh, for, you know, due to things coming out of anti-Vietnam War protests at the American Embassy and stuff like that, where a lot of people with his views were getting kicked out back then. Um, and he was, and so he was very active in that. And this is a, you know, like kind of leading into 1968, you know, which was which was this time of like revolutionary excitement all around the world and revolutionary excitement of a kind that I think somebody with his politics would really see as a as a confirmation of everything that he stood for. So uh, they, uh, the international socialists, were you know extremely critical of, you know what passed for socialism in countries like the Soviet Union. You know, their slogan was neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism. And so, uh, you know, seeing like the de Gaulle government almost being brought down in France by a combination of uh, this like student insurrection and, and workers general strike at the same time that the Prague spring is going on this, this kind of experiment with the you know reformist government uh, in Czechoslovakia trying to create what they called socialism with a human face until it was crushed by Soviet tanks, really made it seem like both systems were sort of under threat from you know restlessness from below, uh, which is what those guys were all about. The uh, you know Hitchens didn't leave the IS uh, till sometime in the 
not very late in the 70s. You know, I'm not sure about the exact year, but uh, the first book that has his name on the cover is one from uh, a couple years actually before he started the New Statesman, you know, which is like sort of where his career as a journalist is usually dated from, uh, was from 1971. Uh, and it was a collection of writings by Marx and Engels about the Paris Commune on the, the 100th anniversary of that. And I guess just to say 30 seconds for anybody who's unfamiliar with that, you know, that's a, this event in uh, 1871 where kind of ordinary workers and soldiers uh, take over the, the city government in Paris in kind of the chaos of the end of the Franco-Prussian War. And, you know, that like factory factories where the owners have fled are sort of turned over to workers' control. And, and there are all these like really radical democratic kinds of reforms. Uh, you know, Marx and Engels were really excited about it. And so, you know, th- this is what he's writing the introduction to, and this gives you some sense of, of where his head is at at this at this time, right? You know, he's he's a like pretty orthodox kind of you know anti-Stalinist revolutionary Marxist, uh, and as you say, he starts to work for uh, the New Statesman, you know, this left wing, I think probably further left back then, although ambiguous, you know that. Uh, well, it's it's inter- no, it's interesting that you say that um, because I think we're going to get to that sort of at the end. That's like where I want to lead this because the fact that the new statesman is not the same, like this this progression of history actually um, pro- impacted his thinking and probably is the reason we see what we would consider in retrospect such a, such large errors or shifts when actually. Other historical context is happening. That's why I was taking notes as you were talking because I plan on bringing some of that stuff up because that's a that's a perfect sort of uh, example of sort of what's happening here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that a lot of um, you know a lot of the shifts in Hitchens's thinking over the decades. I think you know if you do what I think too many people on the left do and just sort of make it this like very narrow morality tale about Christopher Hitchens Hitchens as an individual, you miss a lot of what's going on there because, uh, because I think that this is, I don't think you can separate why and how he was changing from the ways that like way bigger currents than him were changing at the time. Uh, And that's kind of one of the big themes of that part of the book. But uh, in any case, he comes to the United States in uh, the, at the beginning of the eighties, initially as part of a exchange program between the new statesmen and the nation. Um, and then like that was supposed to last for a year. They decided, no, I like it here. I want to stay. And uh, so he, you know, he asked, you know, like he told them that he'd be interested in just like having a permanent job at, at the nation. And interestingly enough, uh, Victor Navasky, who was the publisher of the nation that uh, says in this little reminiscence of Hitchens they wrote after Hitchens died, that um, one of the initial ideas they were throwing around for like what his job was going to be at the nation was that he could be like the um, the Wall Street correspondent, essentially, uh, which which I think would have I think is like a really kind of tantalizing like alternate timeline version of Hitchens, you know, where he's yes. he's spending most of his time writing about that. Yes, I, I think that could have potentially changed his whole outlook down the line. I think so, as well. yeah. Uh, because he did stay, you know, I mean, I remember, um, you know, seeing him on television and reading his stuff in the 90s. And 
his politics were very similar. I mean, he would always say he was a socialist when he was asked. Um, he made no, you know, bones about it. He was obviously a huge critic of, as you point out, U.S. imperialism uh, with this Kissinger book. A huge cr- critic of neoliberalism uh, with the, the Clinton's triangulation. I mean, that the whole theme of that book is is lies and triangulation, which is a, a you know, basically in taking apart the Clintons, he's taking apart this neoliberal new new Democrat idea. Um, so, so he, he continued with those, with those views, um, but in a, but in the United States and in a historical context where the, as you said, like the, the revolutionary spirit of 68 is gone. Um, the Clintons are ascendant, neoliberalism is ascendant and the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, now, as you said, and I think it's important to mention, uh, his socialism was more what I think the, the, what most people are are trying to put forward today is an international solidarity type of socialism, not pointing to one place and saying we should do it like that. Um, so maybe you can go into a little bit about uh, what how you were able to sort of establish these through some debates, and then we'll get into some of the changes. Sure. Uh, yeah, and I should say uh, that... During the 80s and uh, early 90s, uh, there there are a couple of like like big fat like collections of essays that that he wrote back then that you can still find you know on um, you know like you know like like you can you know you can certainly find a copy to buy but I, I've always thought it was a shame that they haven't been put out in like shiny new editions like all you know like so many of the other books uh, that. Some of which really feel like he's like like I mean some like some of the lines in some of these essays like are kind of remarkable. I mean it almost feels like some sort of like ghost of Christmas future thing where he's like rebuking like you know like the two thousands version of of himself right because he's he spent so much time going after kind of like you know nineteen eighties uh, you know Reaganite warmongers you know that that's so much yeah. of uh, that's so much what he's doing. But the nineties, as you say, it's. Um, you know he is still very much socialist. Um, you know he he leaves the IS back in the seventies because you know in a sort of immediate sense because of you know whatever factional stuff was going on that week, right? You know uh, that's anybody who's familiar with this world knows how that goes. But like leftist, uh, we love leftist infighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hardly well, anybody understands what the hell we're talking about. No, exactly. Uh, and uh, but in a, in a larger sense, uh, he he leaves because because he senses that you know like 1968 was not as he was hoping like the beginning of something, but it was it was it was at least the end for sure of at least that wave of something, and uh, and the world was not going to be like this. And he you know and he kind of recalibrates. And he does, you know, he does rejoin the Labor Party at a certain point, and I think he's probably in, you know, the late seventies, eighties, nineties. You know, he's he's in some ways, at least in terms of whatever very small amount of time he might have spent thinking about left strategy, which wasn't really where his head was at. I, I think a much more moderate kind of socialist, although certainly his long term goals were just as radical as they they always were, right? So you mentioned debates, and. You know, like one debate that I'll, I look at in the book, uh, don't spend a lot of time on, but but like it's just kind of a fascinating artifact because it's such a strange uh, lineup. Is uh, Christopher Hitchens and Jesse Jackson 
uh, tag team debated two guys for the National Review about the death penalty, uh, moderated by Ed Koch for some reason. And um, that's and, and in there, he uh, you know he kind of casually mentions at one point uh, the that the goal ultimate goal of his politics is a classless society. You know, he says he objects not merely to you know human sacrifice, you know, i.e. the death penalty, but to a system that demands human sacrifice. Uh, he says that, you know, he quotes uh, Frederick Engels on the idea that in a future egalitarian society, we wouldn't need a repressive state, just a you know neutral administration of things. So, and this is 1997, right? Like, so this is, this is pretty late. I think there's an interesting question about when his kind of faith and all of that really starts to falter because i think like most people and this is not like particularly a knock on hitchens i just think this is like humans right like like most people i think there's a i think there's usually a gap between when people like stop deeply believing something and when they kind of admit to themselves that they've stopped believing it believing it and um, yeah it's a it's a process for sure yeah for and and so I, i think that like it's possible Likely, actually, I think that in 1997, right, he was already somewhere in that, right, but he was still, you know, but like he was still saying, and I, I don't think he was being insincere, exactly, right. I, I think he's, he was still tried very hard to hold on to this view of the world, although I think it was getting harder and harder because he is somebody who was like that. that that's always the fascinating thing about him, right? That uh, that like like watching like the, like 80s and 90s, you know, Hitchens clips, you know, because like there'll be some, you know caller on c-span you know who you know be like i i don't like this christopher hitchens character he seems like too much of a liberal and you know and get hitchens will be like oh madame you have insulted me more than you know right you know like yeah exactly it's like it's funny because um you know because it's it's just like the sort of the sort of like delightful oddity of of like all of those 80s and 90s hitchens clip is like, oh man, how did he get in here, right? Because because he's this guy who is like, frankly, you know, espousing socialist convictions, who is you know, is on C-SPAN, you know, and yeah. and you know places you know places like that, and so because I think he's swimming in such mainstream waters, um, I think that on a sub-rational level, right? I, th- I think it's, I mean, I think this is just kind of inevitable that like whoever you spend all of your time with. Right, you know that they're a way of seeing the world. You know, there's going to be some leakage there, and so I think that much more so than like somebody, you know, like if you think about sort of old radicals who kind of weathered this period of the '90s, you know, with with their convictions more intact than Hitchens were. I don't think none of Hitchens were intact, right? You know, but I, I think you know more intact, like your Alex Coburns, your uh, uh, your Noam Chomsky's. You know, like 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 I think those guys were much more sort of off in a little corner somewhere doing their own thing, right? You know, and, and Hitchens is much more like, you know, at the Vanity Fair party, like, you know, maybe stewing because like fucking Henry Kissinger is like, you know, is, is like in the center of the room and, you know, it's like, oh my God, you guys not know that he's a war criminal. But yeah. like, <laughs> you know, but the fact that he's there, I think means that to some extent, you know, he absorbs the perceptions of the world of the people around him. Yeah. And, and the 90s, I think to an extent, you know, I'm going to sound like a very old man here for a second, but like to an extent that I think that people who are radicalized in like 2015, 2016 sometimes have a hard time wrapping their minds around, 
the nineties was just like a barren landscape from the perspective of radical politics. It's so interesting. You said that because my next segment, the first, the first line of it says the impact of the nineties, because I, again, as I said, I was an adult in the nineties and I think people who younger, younger folks um, don't really appreciate um, sort of the, the nothing that was going on. Like, I think you, you you said it well, like, you know, if Hitchens is at this thing and he's swimming in that water, like, yes, Chomsky uh, and, and, and Alex Coburn uh, could, could, could stay, could, their politics could stay pure, but, I mean, nobody knows really who Alexander Coburn is. That, I mean, people know, but intellectuals know, but, but yeah, exactly. People know, but that's like, they know in the way that like, if you know, uh, yes. like, like, like they, they know in the way that like everybody who's like, you know, like everybody who, uh, you know, like they know in the way that like, I don't know, 30 years ago, you know, people knew what the Velvet Underground was or whatever. Right. I mean, like it's, it's, it's like the, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's not, you know, no, nobody who's like, you know, I don't know, like, you know, listening to, you know, Zeppelin on the radio for the, you know, for like the, in the, it's 3000th rotation, you know, yeah. there's, you know, knows how, what else, you know, Velvet Underground is uh, at that time, right? And so it's like, yeah, if you're sort of a, a leftist, if you're if you're in certain kinds of political media yourself, right? You know, maybe you know who Alexander Coburn is, uh, but uh, but like, yeah, he's not. You know, he's not reaching anybody outside of the world of like, you know, the Nation magazine, and even there, it's like a little bit of an oddity because. You know, like like even the even the nation. I mean, I think it's. I, I mean, I think it's complicated. I think it's gotten different since then. Uh, I don't even want to say better or worse. I think better in some ways. You know, like like yeah. you know, but um, but it's you know one way in which it was definitely worse at the time is that like if you were around that kind of world, right? You know, what sort of you know, there wasn't really left media, you know, but like even in that kind of like progressive media, uh, and you like hated, you know, you hated the Clintons as much as either Kyle Coburn or Hitchens did, right? That made you like a little bit of a weirdo. Correct. Yeah, I mean, because again, everybody just assumed it was the end of history, and like there's no other way to go. So you could you could be the weird guy, like the eccentric uh, on the masthead, or the eccentric at the university, or whatever, but. That's not really, uh, it's not productive, that's not necessarily productive. And I think that was the, that, that's kind of the point I guess I think I'm, I'm trying to make. Yeah, there are definitely, definitely trade-offs there. And like, I, I think that there's a, it's not like, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe this time period is so bad that you can make a case the other way. But like, you know, generally speaking, like I'd much prefer that, you know, people get their hands dirty trying to like, you know, trying to engage with, you know, with, with real politics and, yeah. and, and push things in the right direction. So, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a period, and I think this is a period where, you know, you, you use that phrase, the end of history, you know, the, from the, you know, Francis Fukuyama book. Um, and, you know, also think of like, you know, kind of phrase that rattles around in my head when I think about this is like Margaret Thatcher's thing in Atita, right? There is no alternative, you know, that like, this is, this is all, you know, this is the only thing that's, that's possible. And, um, and I think in a weird way, right. Even though Hitchens like at his most radical point in his, his youth, right. You know, was, was a Trotskyist, 
so it's so it's not like he he liked you know the Soviet model, but I think that the fact that the Soviet Union existed uh, made it feel a lot more like certain really fundamental questions about how to structure a society were on the table politically. That you know that you know even if you you know even if you're position was door number three or whatever like that 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 was something that was kind of up for debate and i think in the 90s there's this incredibly widespread sense that um that it wasn't anymore right that some kind of liberal capitalism had had won and you uh and all there was to do was you know maybe you could kind of argue about the details right you know but that was pretty much it and even like not only was like socialism you know like really uh seen as just being completely off the table even like you know, New Deal, Great Society kind of liberalism, you know, was 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 seen as like pretty marginal, you know, like like they, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, Clinton rolled a lot of that back. And what did no. exist, the, the, the little bit that did exist started to be rolled back. So totally. Um, so even. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even even the option of trying to work within the, the systemic, the system that we have wasn't wasn't an option because the. You know the the liberal mandate was to you know cut that back, all of it, and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, this is one of those things where I I think a lot of people who are younger now just do not have a sense of how bad this was because it's like I always tell people like, okay, think about all the stuff that you're most angry about at Joe Biden about, and and you know you should be right, like that you know you should be angry about about right. these things, but like. So much of it, right, when people start, like, really, like, putting together the list, is like, oh, he hasn't done this, he hasn't done that. It's like, okay, right? I agree with you. But, like, compare that, right? Like, like I, I'm angry at Joe Biden because he's not pushing for Medicare for all, uh, or, or even whatever, like, things much more incremental than that that, you know, that he's not doing. Compare that to Bill Clinton, the Democratic president, who was championing, you know, this like Dickensian horror show of so-called welfare reform uh, in the in the 90s, who was actively working to roll back, you know, as you say, you know, what had what had already uh, had had already been won. And that was the Democrat, right? I mean, the the the, the political debate was like it went from, you know, Clintonism more or less to to um you know, to like, you know, Gingrichism, you know, to, to like Republicans who are like mad because like the rollback of the welfare state wasn't going fast enough or didn't go far enough. Like that was the political debate that existed at the time. I and mean, even somebody like, you know, like the, the member of the Clinton administration has probably had the best political afterlife, you know, Robert Reich. I mean, you look at what he was writing back in the uh, 90s. You know, he wasn't nearly as cool back then, you know, <laughs> like, uh... yeah, Robert Reich did a video that was pretty good. I think about unions or something. And I sent it to Harvey JK and I was like, look, you did your video with these guys. This is pretty good, even though it's Robert Reich. And he was like, I don't, don't send me that <laughs> <laughs> it's because uh, you know, he sent me some kind of emoji that it was like, no, nah, I don't, I don't like that. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, people don't Harvey, yeah, Harvey JK. <laughs> yeah. He, we've actually done a lot of work with him. I met him through Michael and, um, he's been very, um, very, very generous with his time. We've done a lot of stuff, uh, talked about his books and, and he's been available for me to like bounce stuff off of. He's, he's a, just a great, great man. Um, let me, uh, ask about, I should, I should, I, I should say, by the way, before we, before we shift away from the, uh, the Harvard JK footnote that there is a, uh, I believe 
that there is a Hitchens connection there. So Harvey has the Payne, a, the Thomas uh, Paine connect, connection, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Harvey has a blurb on Hitchens's uh, Thomas Paine book. And I believe Hitchens was on like the jury that awarded Harvey some kind of prize for his, his Thomas Paine book. Uh, so, so there's a, there's a point, there is an interesting point of connection there. Although I think that the, um, I think Harvey's reason for, for being interested in pain is much better than late Hitchens' reason for being interested in pain. Yeah, I don't think there's that. any question. I think the well, the idea not to get not to get uh, too far off too far afield, but Hitchens was also a biography of Jefferson, which is right. Yeah, not, well that's and that's the that's the real division there, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's like because like yeah. the I, I mean, I think the kind of character essentially the correct view is that um is that like um is that pain, you know, was was basically the only good, you know, the, the only, only good founding father. father. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, exactly. no uh, question about it. Yeah, yeah. So and, before and, we get, to, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like in Hitchens' pain book, he, you know, even though he does say some Harvey Cash things, you know, he he gives pain credit at one point, you know, for basically having these sort of proto social democratic, you know, economic ideas. Uh, but like, it's also all bound up with this idea that, um, you know, as, as Hitchens and in, in his, his sort of like worst, most incomprehensible moment to me moments, you know, would say, right. That the, uh, uh, American revolution is the only one of the, the revolutions that's still available for export. Right. You know, but so that, that, that's kind of all bound up with this sudden interest, you know, not sudden. I mean, it, you know, he, he'd had some of these interests for a long time, but that's bound up with the the new emphasis in the late 2000s on, on his interest in the uh, founding fathers. Yeah. And I think it was bound up in a lot of new atheism stuff too. Not that uh, Hitchens was all, you know, his views on that subject didn't change. And I want to you know, talk about that a little later. Cause mine, I have a weird sort of relationship to that, but before we get to new atheism and before we get to the Iraq war, I wanted to just stop uh, and take one uh, item uh, to talk about sort of where Hitchens went astray, because I think it does have some, um, some relevance today because I call it the Corbin conundrum. Um, you talk about a debate about um, the EU that he did, I think, with his brother. I'm not positive. Uh, okay, and his his position on the EU was positive, and I think it was for a reason that you you sort of were describing his idea just about a a classless society where you just sort of in an international way come together and make decisions in a more democratic international way. And actually, when you think about his foundation in that idea that you described earlier, I think it makes sense that you would think, well, we, we need to start coming together in solidarity somehow. And so we have no other, and now we have no other option but sort of this neoliberal capitalist option. And so he got sucked into that. And, and again, I call it the Corbyn conundrum because Corbyn at the time of Brexit wasn't able to say, wasn't able to give the full leftist critique because anti-Brexit uh, in the remain in the UK were, were, mani- or were, were liberals and the, the, the Brexiters were, were Tories and, and reactionaries. And so he was stuck in the middle, like, I, I have no room to make this leftist critique. And I think that that really harmed him in, in, when he was the leader of labor. Um, so I feel like I feel like the dynamics almost very similar. Um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that before we moved on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think that that was, God, you know, like the whole thing was so... Uh, 
it, it was just such an awful like kind of curveball from history for the like you know this like brief glorious moment when when the the left you know had taken over the, the labor party and like the the single issue that in some ways would have been hardest for them to navigate is the one that that like very shortly afterwards you know became like the dominant issue in british politics yeah the only <laughs> one yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why. I mean, that I mean, that's that's why they they got um, you know lost that election in uh, in twenty nineteen because that was about as close as, as any as any general election gets to being single issue, and it was an issue on which like they just didn't have much to say, right? You know that they they didn't like everything everything the Labour Party had to say sounded like it was a really awkward compromise that was hammered out, you know, in, in, in some committee room which is basically what it was right you know so Correct. uh and and and, and I'm, I'm always extremely sympathetic you know because like in with the initial brexit referendum happened um that yeah i mean what do you um you know people like you know sort of like anti-brexit um europhile liberals you know were like mad at corbin because like okay he campaigned for no but his heart didn't seem to be in it it's like yeah of course right i mean like nice. that's like i mean obviously because like yeah it's the the push for brexit at that time is all bound up with all sorts of terrible things and so like you know so so uh you know this this kind of like anti you know anti-immigrant stuff and whatever you know and it was it was a uh, like it'd be very difficult to you know to to support that right with a good conscience but also like yeah of course it was half-hearted like how much enthusiasm are you going to work up for for staying in the eu you know like like if you if you have any understanding from a left perspective of what that institution is or what not very long before it had done to greece you know like that's a of course uh and and yeah i think that is a really revealing moment in hitchens progression so in 1999 there's this debate at Conway Hall uh, between the two Hitchens brothers, uh, Christopher and uh, and Peter, uh, and you know which I mean like there are a couple of those and like they're they're just great to watch because it's it's so it's like surreal that you know that Peter Hitchens was his brother like this is a guy who uh, you know Christopher has a line in his memoir Hitch twenty two in the context I should say of a couple pages where he ultimately says some like very affectionate things about Peter, but, you know, says that uh, Peter's book, The Broken Compass, contained assertions so reactionary that he felt the need to wear a garlic necklace to read it. Uh, the, uh, like, uh, you know, Hitchens obviously was all about, you know, militant atheism. Uh, in fact, when I talked to Peter, he told me that that was probably Christopher's most consistently held position over the course of his life, probably from about the age of 11 was his estimate. Uh, and, um, you know, and whereas Peter is actually a very devout Christian. Uh, and, and Peter is like a extremely conservative in a sort of um, paleo-con isolationist sort of way, right? Which is like in, in a weird way, like just the near opposite of where Christopher ended up. So this is obviously pre-2001. This is a, a much more left-wing version of Hitchens. This is, you know, this is a version of Hitchens, you know, who hasn't stopped calling himself a socialist. But it's also... I think very revealing because in this debate, which is mostly essentially about Brexit, uh, Peter didn't like it being described that way because, like, even though he doesn't think Britain should be in the EU, he didn't, you know, he didn't like the Brexit referendum because he's kind of a crank and he doesn't like anything, you know. But uh, the uh, I can support that. 
Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, uh, but uh, but but Peter has taken you know again to be a little anachronistic, essentially a pro Brexit you know position, and Christopher is not. So even though for most of the debate. Uh, it's it's you know given their sort of respective worldviews, it's very easy for somebody like me to, you know, there are a lot more things that Christopher says that you know make me want to get up and clap, right? You know that like he's he's got this great line where he's kind of, you know, making fun of a lot of you know Peter's assumptions about the world, and you know it's like look here are some things I don't lose any sleep over that the the Tory party isn't reactionary enough. That the Church of England isn't ridiculous enough, you know. They like it goes on, you know, in yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in that vein. But like, but the thing is, one of the points that that Peter makes really strongly, and that also comes up in the Q and A, that's just right, and that Christopher doesn't have a good response to, is well, hold up, but you know, is it this kind of a bankers' club? Like, what about the what about the uh, democratic deficit? You know that the, you know that like the European institutions, you know, that there's much less democratic control. You know that that there is you know within uh, within national institutions, uh, isn't this a isn't this a problem? And Christopher's sort of way of awkwardly navigating around that, because like really his reason for supporting British membership in the EU is that he's hoping that it's going to have you know essentially right. I mean, if you if you kind of strip it to the core of what he's saying, right, you know, like a civilizing impact, you know, that it's 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 going to sort of make, um, you know, impose more sort of, you know, modern liberal kinds of standards, you know, on on the UK in various areas, and um, he has so like one of his lines in there is that he he describes people who are anti EU as wanting you know like anti EU conservatives as wanting to turn the UK into a kind of offshore Serbia. Uh, and um, you know because because thinks yeah this is this like positive institution that's going to guarantee human rights protections and this and that but like how is he going to navigate around right that dilemma you're talking about and like this obvious very good argument against his position and he sort of says well look uh, it's not like um, it's not like there's a lot of democratic control over, you know, the Bank of England or the Privy Council. It starts to list off all these institutions, right? So there's going to have to be a struggle for democracy one way or the other, and I think we're better off waging it, you know, on the sort of level of Europe as a whole. You know, which, which, like, okay, I think that that's probably about the best you can do if you're going to defend the position that he's defending, but also I think the reason I say it's kind of revealing is that it's like listening to that. It's like, okay, hold up. So this struggle for democracy you're talking about, like, I want to hear a lot more details about that. Right. Like, like, like who is waging the struggle and how, yeah. How's that work? <laughs> you know, yeah. How do, what are we doing in Brussels? Like how, what are we doing? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause, cause I, and I think that like what it really shows is that I think what somewhere in between, you know, the sort of revolutionary fervor of 1968 and the end of this like very dark period in the 90s, which, of course, when it ended, that that didn't end immediately in favor of something better. It it, it ended in favor of something even worse, right? In the in the early 2000s, uh, but like at the end of this very dark period in the in the 90s, you know, the sort of ascendant, you know, third wave neoliberalism, um, that Hitchens. What's really 
become like shrunk down to the point where it's almost gone, I think from his worldview, is any real deep ongoing belief. And I, I'm not, when I say belief, I mean like not like what he would, you know, affirm if you asked him, right? You know, but like what he's what he like really takes seriously at his core, right? Like I think any sort of ongoing belief in the working class as a historical agent has really has is really slipping away at this point. You know, like like it's just not something he talks about uh, almost at all, really. You know, by, yeah. By, I mean, if he talks about class, if he talk, I mean, at this time, if he talked about class conflict or socialism at all, it was like a passing sort of intellectual reference. It wasn't like an actionable. Pot, like we should be trying to do this or do that. It was like, well, if you think about something this way, more theoretical, I was never, you know, um, sort of, yeah, yeah. it was never really like political. It was more theoretical. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe there's some column I haven't read somewhere where Christopher Hitchens talks about like, you know, the, the, you know, the TDU assembling to the, you know, ascending to the leadership of the Teamsters and, you know, fending off the, you know, the Hoffa, you know, legacy, but like, uh, if so, I'm, I, you know, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, and, and it just, again, it's just not the kind of thing that was really on his radar. And I think part of that has to do with swimming in those very mainstream waters where he's, even if he has radical positions for a long time, he's, um, he's sort of framing those positions in ways that the people he's engaging with and arguing with can understand. Uh, and part of it's about that sort of like, end of history feel of the 90s uh politically that so like you know he he talks in a sense right about class conflict in the clinton book but that's really um but in you know not in the sense of like oh here's here's some way that like some sort of revolt from below is likely that's that that's gonna like you know change anything but like purely just in terms of this sort of moral critique of you know, this very correct moral critique, obviously, of um, of you know Clinton, uh, like you know beating up on you know defenseless you know welfare recipients and you know and 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 you know being in bed with Tyson Foods and you know stuff like that, right? That like yeah. all of this stuff is very correct, but like what's really missing from it is this sense that there's like anything basically to be done about it except to sort of like privately morally deplore it yeah there's no there's no actionable politics there's no candidate to support or policy to support to do anything about it you know you can pick you can pick at you know the deficiencies and how it doesn't match up with what you think the you know the moral proper uh sort of outlook on the world but there's no but like i said it's, it's theoretical uh, it's a theoretical critique that's, uh, as you said, I think it was correct. Um, so the end of the 90s, I think, happened on September 11th, um, 2001. Um, and this, uh, w- like it was for everyone who was an adult at this time at least, uh, did did affect the the culture and society and our way of thinking and politics. Um, you know, that's just what happened. Um, so ultimately... Hitchens became what people would say it would be a neocon in foreign policy. Now I have three and, and you can, and you can kind of, yeah, I mean, I don't think so, but that's the, the outlook people have is because he supported these actions. That's what it is. I don't actually think that I think three things. One is 
his atheism comes back to the bubbles back up to the surface because it becomes a thing because one of the one of the uh, sort of foundations or one of the arguments that you know that the uh, terrorists are going to make is that you know this is a this is a holy war now I, I I don't believe that but that's that's what that's what people were seeing um, I also know that you know he uh, Hitchens had was it was a comrade and a friend of the Kurds uh, in Iraq uh, and in Syria and in Turkey. Um, and I know that um, especially in Iraq, the things that uh, Saddam Hussein had done to the Kurds, uh, you know, some of the promises that we made that we didn't keep, um, all of that stuff really ate at him. And I think that the idea of the idea of fighting a religious type of fascism, uh, and actually fighting in his mind for free democratic socialist people, I, I think was his driving was that was his motivation to begin with. Um, but obviously, you know, the way that things broke out, you know, it wasn't like that at all. But I, I would like you to talk a little bit about Hitchens and the Iraq war, um, some of the statements he made and some of the analysis that we can we can make um, in retrospect. Yeah, so. I think it is important to understand what go, what's going on there. Like, I think, you know, saying like, okay, it was like Christopher Hitchens, like a neocon at this point. Well, certainly on some really, really important issues, Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, this whole sort of framework of the global war on terror, you know, he agreed with the neocons, right? I think that's that, that much is undeniable. But the, the reason... Um, you know, the reason that, you know, people listen to this obviously can't see it. I made that, you know, a gesture when you were, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I kind <laughs> of, I, I said it when I made a face. And then you you made the gesture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, is that actually a lot of his views, even in this period, were very un-neocon-ish, right? So there's a point in the... Um, you know, like there's a point in the book where I, I I point out that like there's this sort of cliche about you know people who have like bad you know like who have like bad views about Israel Palestine despite being you know good on everything else right they're like peps you know progressives except for Palestine and in some ways you know you could say you know I sort of joke that like late Hitchens was like a neck of right? a neocon except for Palestine except actually you know except for Palestine and torture and surveillance and, you know, and, and, and all of his domestic views and like, it, like at a certain point, like, okay, like it's, it's not, uh, this is, this is not going to be a helpful term for understanding uh, where he's at. And, and I think, you know, all of which, you know, same, you know, I mean, if the question is just like how we're going to morally judge the position, then like all of this is sort of beside the point. Cause like, you know, I mean, if you're supporting the Iraq war, that kind of trumps everything. But if, if we're interested in the more analytic question of how to understand uh, how he ended up where he ended up, I think all these all these qualifications are extremely relevant because you know, he's really not doing the classic sort of left apostate thing where you go on and on about how wrong you were about everything and how now you see the light. In fact, he was kind of doing the opposite of that, that even with his worst positions uh, in that last decade, he was really playing up uh, the, you know, the continuities between what he thought now and, you know, what he used to think then. And there are a lot of positions that just don't fit. I mean, like, look, an actual neocon, uh, you know, that, that like, you know, Israel-Palestine position is like sort of one of the crucial 
you know, parts of their foreign policy worldview. And that's one he just didn't share. You can see footage from 2002. Uh, it was on C-SPAN with Andrew Sullivan. And, like, they were agreeing on the, you know, on the upcoming war in Iraq. But then a caller calls in and says, hey, um, don't you think that, you know, when the U.S. is demanding that Saddam Hussein follow these U.N. resolutions, that's somewhat undermined by, you know, the U.S., you know, giving cover to Israel, violating numerous U.N. resolutions, and Hitchens says, yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, and and he gets into a huge argument with 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 Sullivan about it because he's he's just not willing to accept the idea that um, you know that that you know Palestinian quote unquote terrorism is in the same you know category you know as as Al Qaeda. Uh, and uh, and there are. A, Again, numerous other issues like this. I would also point out that if anybody actually remembers what the 2000s were like, um, being an outspoken militant atheist and have that be your main thing was not exactly a way to like warm yourself, you know, into the good graces of the American right in the uh, Bush era. Yeah, I mean that new atheism was, and you mentioned it in the book. Before, I mean, we'll, we'll get there. I want to talk about that, but yeah, I mean that was a, that a lot of that was a was a response to a growing or a perceived, I guess maybe some perceived, some real growing of the evangelical Christian base in the United States with George W. Bush that, that, kind, of, that kind of went into this neocon shift and, and the Bush administration and all of that. And you actually, uh, uh, on these same lines, you, uh, you, you mention it in the book, and it is a nice little detail because, you know, after 9-11, the flag was the big thing. You had to wear the flag pin and the flag and everything, the flag. And when Hitchens went out, uh, he would wear a pin, but he would wear a Kurdish, uh, the Iraqi, the independent Iraqi Kurdistan uh, flag on his lapel. He wouldn't wear the American flag. Now he he did um, he he did have a, you know, when he became an American citizen, he had a little, little patriotic streak. But I guess everybody kind of does. Um, I don't really I don't necessarily have a problem with that. We were talking about uh, Harvey J K earlier. I, somebody asked me what a socialist patriot would look like, and I said I think it would look like Harvey J K. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but yes, it's, it's a lot more complicated than, um, than it would seem to be if, if you, if you sort of look at the historical context that was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, um, yeah, I'm kind of a, you know, kind of a centrist on that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't get that emotionally excited about American iconography. Like the closest thing I feel to, to real intense patriotism is thinking about like my home state and Michigan state football, the Detroit Red Wings, but the, um, uh, but, uh, but I also think it's like kind of ridiculous and self-defeating for the left to like be hostile to, uh, to patriotic iconography because yeah. they're symbols. They can mean whatever you want them to mean, right? Like, you know, tell whatever story you want to tell about them. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm basically with you on that, but, but I think, uh, but yeah, I think the fact that he's, he's not, yeah, his flag pin is not the stars and stripes, or you know the Union Jack, it's uh, it's the the Kurdish flag. I think is pretty significant uh, in terms of understanding what what happened there. Uh, because even if you say you know there's an element of um, which is just kind of like wrapped up in the sort of jingoistic hysteria that's going on there, and I, and I wouldn't deny that there's an element of you know like, you know, it's been living there for decades, right? That's starting to feel like home, right? You know, we've been attacked, like that that's, that that's part of what's going on there. I don't think it's the main thing that's going on there. And I think in particular, and, you know, and I think, again, I think definitely the version of atheism 
you know, the version of his kind of militant anti-theism he's pushing in the late 2000s is definitely, like, the form it took is definitely bound up with his war on terror positions, you know, that there there is definitely a connection there. Uh, but also, you know, the idea that a lot of people on the left have that you can kind of explain, you know, you can sort of explain everything with, like, atheist-derived, you know, Islamophobia uh, doesn't really ring true to me because, um, one, you know, the point we've already covered that uh, a big part of how he got where he got in foreign policy is that after the first Gulf War, which he opposed, you know, he spent time hanging out in, you know, uh, the, you know, de facto autonomous, you know, Kurdish region in uh, northern Iraq, and um, and and of course, you know, Kurdish leaders there, who you know, as my friend Jude Bajalan, you know, points out, we talk about this, um, is you know, like some of these guys were seventies radicals themselves that could speak to Hitchens in his own language, and you know, and they, for obvious reasons, were all for you know the United States getting rid of Saddam Hussein for them, uh, and and that was like a big you know that was like a big part of what was going on. Another really relevant data point, going back to the nineties and. I think showing how, you know, like earlier when we were talking about the 90s, a lot of that was about the sort of good leftist stuff that you still say in the 90s. But also, I think in some ways, the 90s were a transitional period in his politics. Uh, because even though the sort of overall tenor of what he would say about America's role in the world in the 90s was still, you know, very different, you know, from from what he'd say in the, the 2000s, you know, the you know, like 1996, it comes out with his book, Blood, Class, and Empire, and he says, um, I don't remember if this line is in the book or just in the interviews he gave about it, but he's got that great line about how, you know, he hates what Anglophile means in the U.S. and what pro-American means in the U.K., you know, says that, you know, Anglophile in the U.S. always means that you like the monarchy and masterpiece theater and country houses and all that shit, whereas, like, uh, pro-American in the U.K. means that you think that, you know, MI5 should be best friends with the lads at Langley, and, uh, and and he says he'd be much happier if Anglophile meant that you you liked the National Health Service and pro-American meant that you thought that the uh, UK should copy America's Freedom of Information Act uh, and the separation of church and state. You know, so yeah. uh, like you know the way he's talking about like America's role in the world is, is very different. But he has already started to relax his anti-interventionism, and I think it's really revealing that the conflict that where he sort of first starts to warm up to the idea that at least in certain contexts, American military power can be a force for good in the world is not one where the United States is bombing Muslims. It's the war in Bosnia where the United States is actually intervening on behalf of Muslims against Serbian Christians. And, you know, again, you know, with the, the sort of second act of that in Kosovo at the end of the 90s. So I don't think Islamophobe, you know, like, again, if you want to call like some of his rhetoric about the war on terror, Islamophobic, I'm not going to fight you on that. Certainly, I think it's true that he tended to lump sort of Islam, you know, the sort of vast religious tradition into one big essentialist blob too much as New Atheist period. Of course, he did the same thing with Christianity. And uh, you can also say that he, uh, that he really you know, wildly overstated the realistic threat that Al-Qaeda-style terrorism could actually pose to Western societies. I think that's all true. But um, although, of course, going back to kind of the beginning of the conversation, 
that's not exactly a unique Christopher Hitchens issue. That was like every, you know, yeah, like that's, 90, yeah. that's every, you know, everybody in the, in the early two thousands. Uh, so I, I think that the issue, um, so I think that those explanations don't really hold water and certainly things that like, you know, my, my friends and comrades on the left will, will, will tell me sometimes that, you know, it's like, oh, it's, you know, like somehow or another, you're supposed to blame the booze that it just like, you know, he just like, you know, drank, you know, he just, he just, you know, guzzled too much Johnny Walker black and that ate his brain and somehow turned him into an apologist for imperialism. You know, it like, like, I think really doesn't ring true to me. No, no, it doesn't ring true to me either as, as someone like you who, who followed his work from probably sometime in the nineties. I couldn't say really when I first, uh, encountered uh hitchens to a point where he was doing public speaking visibly ill and and being treated for his cancer and he was pretty much as sharp as ever i mean he he could quote he he could uh, you know he could quote at length different books that he's read um and all of that stuff so yeah that never that never really sat with me either i don't i don't buy any of that i think it's just you know very like sort of glib easy thing because you know he was known as a uh as a as a man who liked to have one Sure, so. sure, sure, sure. Several, uh, yeah, yeah, no, for for sure. I mean, you know, um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think this is not like somehow, like you know, somehow he just had a lost weekend and like he came out of it supporting the Iraq War. This is like this this very gradual transition in his thinking that was like a a decade in the making, like going back to those, those first experiences with the Iraqi Kurds, going back to the war in Bosnia. And I think there are two like kind of threads that come together to explain how he ended up with the position he had in Iraq, which, you know, as some reviewers have pointed out, I don't waste a lot of time in the book arguing that the Iraq war was really bad. Uh, that there's a reason that that part of the subtitle is how he went wrong, not what he got wrong. I, I, I sort of think that if it's 2022, and you need to be convinced that the Iraq war was bad, you know, that like you might be a lost cause. Uh, but yeah, that's kind uh, of off the, that's off the table. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that should be at this point, but, uh, but so, so from, from our perspective, right, he ends up in this catastrophically misguided place uh, on issues like the invasion of Iraq, you know, by 2002. Uh, and so in terms of how he got there, I think there are two threads that had kind of been building since the early 90s. So one is the sort of foreign policy thread that you know we talked about a little bit with the Kurds and you know Bosnians. And, and I think that a big part of that is the idea that in a post-Cold War world, it seemed to him that the United States was fighting very different enemies and that you know the, the sort of script had to be rethought a little bit, right? Like in the um if you know, if George W. Bush had been fighting against like peasant communist revolutionaries, like in you know, like you know, LBJ and Nixon had been in Vietnam, or you know, or 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 Reagan had been in Nicaragua, then there's no way that Christopher Hitchens could have ever brought himself to support that. Uh, I, I firmly believe that. Uh, but like thinking back to like the '80s, right? You know, those Reagan-backed like dirty wars in Central America that he spent so much of his time back then writing about, right? I mean, that was like really the big thing that he got the most passionate about 
in his, you know, excoriations of American foreign policy and Kissinger and all that stuff, the fact that the United States was was backing these like brutal gangsterish, you know, like right wing authoritarians around the world. And and I think it, it increasingly seemed to him that's like, well, okay, hold up. Like Slobodan Milosevic, um, Saddam Hussein, uh, the Taliban, right? Who do these more closely resemble, right? The kinds of forces that um, the United States was fighting against in the 80s or exactly the kind of forces the United States was backing in the 80s. And in so, some cases, uh, the literally the same ones. Literally yeah. backing in the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah totally. Taliban, uh, Hussein, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, just it all came right back around. No, totally. Uh, so, so I think that's like one big part of how how shifted. And then I think the other thread you have to look at is the socialism thread, which we kind of talked about earlier. But like, there's a there's a point in um, the uh, in uh, his memoir History Two, where he says that even if he didn't like quite realize it at the time. When he looks back on it, there, there was a point in the late 90s where it says that, like, he kind of stopped, he kind of given up hope that, like, socialism was ever really going to be on the table again. And, you know, he thinks in retrospect that part of the reason that he was still, you know, insisting on it was, like, it was just like, look, every time he went on C-SPAN, Brian Lamb would always ask him in a really condescending way whether he was still a socialist and you know, and and it was important to him, right? That you know that he not uh, that he always say yes, damn it, right? You know that he didn't want Brian Lamb to win, you know that. Uh, so it's like I think I think it's like probably I think probably that's like a really emotionally honest assessment that uh, that in retrospect, at a certain point in this end of history period where he's really imbibed those assumptions, that it's just kind of over now, and capitalism has won, uh, that he. Uh, that like really on some level, it, the only thing kind of helping him cling to his socialism was just pure stubbornness. And so it, you know, given that by 2001, before 9-11, uh, you know, he's written this book, Letters to Young Contrarian. It comes out like, you know, October 2001. So it, it was, you know, probably finished in, you know, 2000 sometime, you know, like at the very latest, I don't know what the publishing schedules might have looked like. But I'd be shocked if it was later than like very, very early 2001. Uh, so, and in that book, that's the one where he finally sort of um, explicitly, you know, admits to himself that he thinks that it's over. That you know that he he thinks the he thinks socialism is not happening. That you know he he has some very uh, weak tea kinds of things to say about how. You know, he'd like the world to be less economically oligarchical somehow or another. It's very vague, right? You know, but like he and and he still thinks that there are, you know, he's still uh, in his head. He still accepts the you know materialist theory of history from Karl Marx, which I I think there are fascinating questions about the extent to which he really does that I get into in a lot of the book. But you know, he thinks that he still does. He still thinks a lot of the analysis of capitalism is right. But you know, he's given up on socialism, and I think that this. I think the fact that not that long before 9-11, he kind of came to that realization helps to explain his reaction to 9-11 and his support for the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Because if, given that for most of his career, presumably, right, as, you know, 
oftentimes is like a globetrotting journalist, you know, who's who's going to, you know, visit, you know, countries like Iraq, for example, you know, and, and you know, living under these kind of tin pot despotisms and, and you know, often, you know, befriending, you know, uh, dissidents in various countries like this, whatever. Presumably, you know, 70s, 80s, you know, like on some level, he still believes that sooner or later there's going to be some like global wave of, you know, of, of socialist revolutions that will that will sweep these regimes into the dustbin of history. Uh, but, you know, by sometime in the 90s, he's, he's finding a harder and harder time taking that seriously. And uh, and by, you know, by 2001, it's it's gone. And so it's like, okay, if we're not going to have socialist, we're like, let's at least have democratic revolution, you know, could at least hold out some kind of hope for that. And up until this point in this chain of reasoning, I could be somewhat sympathetic. But then where he loses me is in convincing himself. And I think that's the only way to put it, that, you know, convincing himself, because I, I, I think it's like extremely irrational, but I think it's just like at a point where this was like kind of what he had to convince himself of to, you know, to maintain any hope in this kind of project that like the 82nd airborne to use his favorite example, right. You know, could, could be a vehicle of democratic revolution in these countries, which I think you have, I think is just fucking insane. I mean, that like, yes. like we've, we've seen, we've seen what that looks like in the last two decades and it's not happening, right. Like that the, uh, you cannot, Re, like taking the morality out of it for a second, the idea that the United States can go around the world and even have the capacity to remake other societies in our image is just kind of delusional. I mean, like after literally 20 years of pouring money into Afghanistan and maintaining the war there, uh, we were unable to prop up a, a government that could like last for five seconds in the absence of American troops. And that kind of tells you tells you everything, you know, that, that this, this is just not like a way that this could happen, even if the United States really wanted it to happen, which there's lots of room to, you know, to question, you know, that like how, you know, exactly how much democracy, you know, the United States would actually like in Middle Eastern countries, where I think the right answer is until exactly the point where it becomes inconvenient for American interests. Yeah, I mean, and that's the problem, right? We can't use it, to your point, the 82nd Airborne. Uh, yes, I mean, on one hand, I can imagine, you know, offering uh, aid, military aid even, to people trying to do a revolution or to overthrow a tin pot despot, say. But but if you're, as you said, but that's not what we do. That's not what we use it for. We use it to create, to be able to put like a McDonald's and a Gap and like, like we're trying to re- make it in our image for other people. That's never going to work. And so that's the I think that's the bit as you said that that's missed. It's like yes, there are people like um like the Muslims in Bosnia, like the Kurds. There are people that could use the help and probably have good ideas about how to govern themselves, but we don't let people govern themselves. <laughs> that's not what that's not why the 82nd Airborne goes anywhere. It's like so you can govern yourself, <laughs> so we can govern you. You know, it's a it's a pure it's a, it's still a, it's still a colonial exercise. No, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, that yeah, again, you know, I I think the United States, you know, likes democracy in um, in in countries in, in the global periphery to the exact extent that uh, that it happens to be convenient to yeah. to American interests. 
and no more, which I mean, you can see like even, even during Hitchens lifetime, right. You know, there was the, um, you know, there, there was the, the coup, uh, in, um, in, in Egypt, you know, against, against the democratically elected, uh, government, uh, you know, by the, you know, the Muslim brotherhood that like, you know, Barack Obama, you know, like pretty openly gave a green light, uh, to, uh, to Mubarak for that. Right. I mean, that, that's not, uh, like, of, of course, like, yeah, you're not gonna, you know, like people don't, you know, people don't, uh, go around, uh, invading each other's countries and, and, you know, pouring vast amounts of blood and treasure into these projects out of altruism. Uh, like that's, that's just not how it, how it works. Uh, and, and particularly if you're the, you know, the epicenter of global capitalism, you know, that's really not how it works. And even if, like, even if you believe on some sort of level, you know, that is the goal, I mean, it's, it's just not going to be effective because, uh, you know, most people don't like being bombed and invaded and uh, they, they aren't going to have warm feelings towards, towards the, the power that is, is, is occupying them, you know, like, like, so, which is why I think, yeah, of course I would, I mean, you know, that governments don't get much more evil than the Taliban and, and, and I would, I would love the, there to be social progress in Afghanistan, but I, I think that just has to come from within the society. Yeah, when the when the first armored division uh, is rolling through, they're not rolling in in solidarity with anybody other than, you know, global capital. That's it. So, well, I, I do want to read this one passage because I think it's pretty good. I, I think it, it hits. You're you're speaking about something specifically in the memoir Hitch Twenty Two, so it's it, you have to think about it. But it, it does encapsulate this to put a sort of a bow on it. Uh, my, my best guess about all of this passage in Hitch 22 was Hitchens' introspectively honest reflection on the change. He abandoned the socialist cause not because he no longer thought that, quote, more enlightened application of the idea in non-capitalist future he talked about in the debate with Bitswanger and Ridpath was desirable, but because it no longer seemed realistically possible that such a venture could ever come about. So, yeah, I mean, I think from a theoretical standpoint, um, he understood it, uh, but was just in a place where his imagination was beaten down by neoliberalism and the Clintons, I guess, and, and some of this atheism stuff. So I do, I do want to get your take on it because I, 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 I fell into it. We'll just do it quickly because I, I was brought up Catholic, but I never really, like I know in myself, I never really believed it. It was just not, it didn't, it didn't click with me. And so uh, as an adult, I started reading these books by Bart Ehrman. I don't know if you're familiar with them. He's a scholar at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, I think. Uh, but he does a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, biblical criticism, talks about how the books of the Bible were put together, talks about other Christian sects that didn't sort of like pan out uh, and why, like the political and historical reasons why they didn't, not just because one was like true because it wasn't. And so I was like, okay, well now I have sort of an intellectual framework to sort of understand my feelings. And then along comes 9-11 and like Sam Harris and this group. And I'm like, man, this is cool. I'm into this. Like I'm, I'm, I, I get this. You know, I, I saw Sam Harris speak in person. I saw Richard Dawkins speak. People forget actually that, the first four sort of new atheist uh, thinkers, uh, Dan Dennett, who is a professor at Tufts, 
Uh, Richard Dawkins, who probably shouldn't have dipped his toe in this because he is a, a you know as a pretty renowned scientist, but now he just gets made fun of on social media. Um, and Sam Harris and Hitchens. So it wasn't it wasn't really it, you know there's there's been mutant strains of the variant now all over the place, um, and even Sam Harris has sort of I think backtracked a little bit um, because I think he noticed the variant spreading and kind of like went back into his hole. I mean. Dawkins is a no, Dennett. I, I don't even know if Dan Dennett's still alive. I know he was an older guy. Yeah, he's, um, he's he's still alive, but I think he's much less focused on this stuff now. Yeah, and he kind of like I remember a, a discussion that Har- Sam Harris and Dennett had years ago, but it was sort of as the as the first part was waning, and like Sam Harris was like starting a podcast or something, and Dennett finally was just like, I don't really know what you're talking about. Like, I, like I'm, I like I. Th- it was it, he kind of had that. recognition that like yeah I was talking about one thing and this is going way somewhere else and so yeah I did get sucked into that Um, I I like your sort of maybe your thoughts about it a little bit one of the things that um, one of the things that helped me solidify my intellectual framework and and, uh, to see what happened there was Michael Brooks Um, and you know he he wrote a book about the intellectual dark web sort of a mutant strain of this kind of stuff Um, the the other thing was sort of the development of some of these offshoots, some of these like uh, the bargain brand ones, and, you're, and it just doesn't doesn't hit the same. Um, so so yeah, I, I was able to sort of uh, shake that off, and I feel better about myself. Um, but Hitchens was part of that, uh, although you know he was a, a, an atheist since the age of ten or eleven. Uh, but I'd just like you to just speak on that just a little bit because I think that's a lot of what he was remembered for because he did do a lot of writing later in his life um, on that and a lot of debates on this topic. Yeah, and I mean, to be honest, I mean, this is definitely part of why I was interested in writing about Hitchens, because I I still find those debates really interesting, uh, and and I have very mixed feelings about um, about you know that kind of period of of atheism, particularly particularly Christopher Hitchens is uh, part of it, right? So uh, I, I guess. I guess maybe let's do it this way. Like, you know, my, you know, cards on the table, right. You know, my own views about all this stuff. Um, I, you know, I am an atheist and I have, um, I've sometimes struggled with that. I'm still kind of figuring out how to sort of navigate the, uh, you know, the issue because I'm also a huge philosophy nerd and I like arguing about stuff like that. And, um, so my my awkward compromise traditionally has been to um, to do like you know if I'm going to start talking about it I'll do like 90 seconds at the beginning about how I I I you know I like Christian leftists you know I'm not like you know uh, you know like uh, it, by the way the spiel is much more is much more persuasive now that I can I can you know like the the thing I always do like I did the debate with Charlie Kirk and we started talking about religion at the end and you know and I, I was just like uh, you know, don't be wrong. I'm, I'm not, you know, on a mission to get everybody in the world to agree with me about this. I, I have nothing but positive feelings for, you know, Christian socialists like Martin Luther King or Cornel West or pause my wife, Jennifer, you know, like that's, uh, you know, like, uh, so, uh, which, and, and that's true, right? Uh, that is my position, right? So, so I think that I, I find the the you know the position that's laid out in the last chapter of Michael's book against the web that you just mentioned 
uh, extremely compelling, which is which is to say that um, you know that there is a, a a sort of aspect of Hitchensian anti-theism that's that's just wrong. That uh, where where Hitchens um, and and his you know compatriots at that time um, sort of thought that religion you know in block right had this particular kind of moral and political valence that is just kind of the wrong way to think about what a religion is because we're talking about these like vast cultural traditions you know often spanning over the course of thousands of years and you know and and like tons of, of very different people sort of speaking the language of this tradition and you know and and within any tradition like that you can find all the material you ever want to you know, for for any you know uh, position that people are likely to to have, I mean that's that's just kind of the nature of the beast, you know. That, and like, those people and those people are situated in particular historical context contexts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain conditions. They they exist with these with these religious traditions or things that they believe, but they also exist in historical and economic conditions that are going to have incredible, uh, you know, that are going to impact that. And and that's going to manifest itself in different ways. And I didn't, I you know, that part I never. It, yeah, no, exactly. it's hard for me to understand that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, I mean, this is this sort of point. I think this might not have made it into the final draft of Against the Web, but there was definitely a point where Michael either included in the draft of one of the chapters, or was at least talking about including. This quote from a book about the uh, 1980s war in Afghanistan, uh, where people are talking about doing, uh, you know, a suicide bombing, basically, and and like these like Mujahideen, you know, fighters, these like insane, you know, right wing fundamentalists, you know, Muslims, like, oh no, you can't, you can't do that, you can't do a suicide mission. That that's that 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 goes against you know Islamic law, right? You know. <laughs> And, uh, and it's, it's kind of a remarkable moment, you know, because, um, like, if you read, like, Sam Harris, you sometimes you get the impression that's like, oh, yeah, they're like, you know, suicide bombings, you know, that, like, you want to know why that phenomenon happens, like, all you need to do is to, like, draw a straight line from there to, you know, like, to, like, some passage in the Hadiths, you know, somewhere. It's like, yeah. well, okay, dude, but, like, why is it that in the intervening, like, thousands of years, all those centuries, you know, this wasn't happening, and it was happening here, right? Like, maybe something yeah. more specific. Yeah, so it's a hazard. Maybe, maybe there's another possible uh, reason this is manifesting itself like this. Yeah, that, that, was the, that was the thing I got from Michael, for sure, is, is that... You know, while while that's true, while you know you can say, well, that doesn't make rational sense, and this, you know, this people can't take this literally, and all of that stuff. I I don't think, I don't think that that in and of itself is where the problems come from. But it was hard to, you know, unless you unless you sort of ha- can can look at it from a material historical condition, unless you understand how that stuff influences you know, people's behavior and people as political beings, then, you know, you're, you're going to have trouble sussing this out. Uh, I, I think on on that issue, I I think that, you know, one reason I do still, despite that, I think, very correct critique that it gets the web, one reason that I do still have mixed feelings about this is that I do still think that 
in late Hitchens, in those debates, I think there's a kind of humanistic moral critique of a lot of, I'm not going to say, like, I think it's kind of a silly game for an atheist to play what counts as, like, real Christianity or Islam or whatever, right? You right. know, but, like, a lot of very standard, like, kind of Abrahamic religious beliefs, there's a kind of humanistic moral critique of it that, like, I still largely agree with. And, and I also think that there's something even though I have lots of criticisms of lots of things that he, you know, he wrote, you know, said in, in, in this period about the subjects that are in the book. Um, I still, you know, even since I wrote the book, I've, I've been thinking about this and, and, and I think that there are basically two reasons I'm still a little ambivalent about, about some of this stuff that, that I, I don't just like sort of reject it wholesale the way that a lot of people in, you know, certain kinds of contemporary left media spaces kind of do, where they just say, like, oh, this is just a dumb waste of time, you know, like, like you know, argue about religion and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I think one, I mean, and probably this aspect I, I do get into in the book, because I, you know, because, I mean, I wrote it at the end of a year where, yeah. you know, like... You know, Michael died, and you know, and 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 the there was a global pandemic, so you know, we all spent a year, you know, like not going outside very much, and and there are other you know tragic things that we don't need to get into here, and like you know, I, I wrote at a time, and I spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about death, you know, and and probably more than I have as an adult before then, and and so this this seems like just on a human level, I mean, this, this still seems like a very compelling issue to me, right? I mean, that this, this is sort of like, um, you know, that, that I, I, I kind of have a hard time believing that anybody's so too cool for school that they're like genuinely uninterested in the subject of like, whether anything happens when they die. Uh, and, uh, and I, and, you know, and, and if the answer is, you know, probably not right which is what i think it is i mean and you know sort of grappling with that you know that like reality seems you know does seem kind of important to me and and then the other one which i think you know like a lot of people and yeah just because this is passe for like us you know they're making new people every day right you know like like new people go through all of this uh, like new people just dropped today yeah, exactly, exactly. Like a bunch of them. A bunch of them bunch everywhere. Of them just, yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and like a certain chunk of those new people, when they get to a certain age, are going to start struggling with the fact that, like, especially if you grow up in, like, a, you know, conservative, like, evangelical kinds of kind of household, as many of them will, uh, that, um, and you realize at a certain point that you have your doubts about whether any of this stuff is true, uh, and and you you, you kind of think like you know maybe not uh, and and a lot of people go through a lot of anguish worrying about whether like if they don't believe in God that makes them a bad person you know whether whether you can sort of have morality without that and and I I do think that there's probably something useful about having people who are sort of publicly taking positions that are going to let people who are in that position know that this is really okay and um and and that they they're they're not um 
you know, you shouldn't worry that you're going to go to hell. You shouldn't worry that you're a bad person, you know? And, and, and I think, I think there's some, I think there's some real value to that. So, which is not to say that like, you know, that's not like the bullet point is like late two thousands. New atheism was good actually. Right. I, I think there were lots, there was a lot that was wrong with it. Right. You know, but, but it is to say, is to say that like, I think that like, rejecting it wholesale is too much i i think that i think that there's like more careful work to be done about sorting out what was good and bad in it and 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 what is sort of like worth you know worth reviving and you know what's best left in the late 2000s no i completely agree i mean i i still what i've done is sort of just you know people i guess would, would would characterize it as being a militant atheist or talking about it all the time or writing about it or whatever uh, you can just be that and keep thinking about it, and if it comes up, discuss it with people or or read something about it. I think all of that needs to be done. I think the context in which it was, in which it was sort of like a, a fad or a phase, probably wasn't um, helpful or productive. Uh, but the I, but the issues being discussed um, absolutely were, as you said. I mean, I'll I'll use the Hunter S. Thompson quote because I don't want to recommend anybody do hard drugs, but they've always worked for me. So like some, sometimes, sometimes you got to clear your mind with something and you have sort of a realization that even if you think as I do, that the metaphors and the religious stuff is, is just sort of made up and people struggling with this idea and that there really isn't any like another life, but there's another something and whatever that is, it's okay. Um, so those, those conversations really do, uh, really are important for people, as you said, to, to like, to know that you can go through this process and you can, you can believe something, you can question it, uh, and, and you can have that, have it out because, yeah, because ultimately, uh, no matter what we talk about, whether it's Hitchens or, or politics or history or whatever, we're all going that way. That's, that's where we're all, we're all ending up there. So yeah, we all share that. And so, um, you know, talking about it with each other can only help really. So I just want to plug, uh, I just saw it today, your new piece in Jacobin. Um, I noticed that, um, uh, two things, uh, while announcing his Supreme Court uh, uh, retirement, uh, Justice Breyer uh, went on and on with this absurd analogy uh, about uh, America being this great experiment. Uh, but what you notice is when you do an experiment and it yields poor results, you sort of test theories and you, you do other stuff, you do other stuff. Um, we it's the uh, whole all, idea of an experiment. The whole idea is if it's not working and it's stupid to do another thing, not continue to do the stupid thing. Um, uh, and we're we're associated with uh, uh, an, an online progressive uh, magazine uh, here too called the Delaware Call, and we ran something last year about abolishing the Senate uh, because a, a very famous statesman from Delaware, uh, Gunning Bedford was part of the uh, compromise to create the two houses and create the Senate. Uh, and we got hate mail like crazy. Um, so people do not like um, questioning um, the, the systems and the structures that we have. Um, but um, you, you go into sort of a little, uh, as, it, as happens now, um, a little more often, which is good, uh, a little bit of analysis about the Supreme Court. And it's a failing experiment. And I hope people read that and understand oh, thank that. Thank you. Yeah, and understand that, um, as you said in the book uh, about Hitchens, as we say all the time here, you really have to keep your imagination uh, fresh and peaked to wonder, to, to, to think about the stuff that we could do, because that really, I think, 
ultimately was Hitchens' fatal flaw as he lost it. Now, whether it was because conditions changed, they certainly did. Um, he changed the country he lived in and the people he hung out with. All of political stuff changed, all that stuff. But the, but, the, but the fact of the matter is that if we're going to show solidarity together and, and try to be comrades and friends in this socialist project, you've got to keep that imagination in, in top, top uh, order. Uh, because we have to think about a lot of things that we don't have today that people have never thought about, like reforming the Supreme Court. Um, so I hope people will uh, pop into Jacobin and, uh, and take a look at that piece because it's excellent. All right. Thanks, brother. Yeah, of course. Uh, ben Burgess, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Um, read that. And also, let me tell you the, the title of the book again, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, where How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Uh, ben, thanks so much. Thank you. Left is best, everyone. Oh, hello, pup. Yeah. My, ah, uh, that's nice. Is it Snowshell? Yeah. Oh, nice. My, my, my in-laws have always had schnauzers. They're great. They're so fun. We have a dog, but uh, not fun dog. <laughs> hey, Lucy.